All right, I'm just going to jump right in, and we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Um, I do most of my stuff from the New King James Version, but the English Standard Version uh, does seem to read a little bit easier. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted or was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve <clears throat> with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while... As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, we also, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The New King James Version starts off chapter 7 with the words, Therefore, having these promises. It's been said that whenever you see a therefore in Scripture... You need to stop and take the time and see what it's there for. 
But Paul provides a hint with this, therefore. He says, having these promises. What promises is he talking about? Well, we go back to the previous chapter, the preceding verses there in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, where Paul speaks of the promise that God would make his dwelling among us, among them, but yes, among us, and that he would walk among us, that he would be our God and we would be his people. He further states that he will welcome us and be a father to us, and we would be sons and daughters to him. That's, that's a promise of adoption from God Almighty. Can we imagine a promise better or greater than that? And it's because of that. Paul makes this appeal to holiness for us to set ourselves apart from the things that God considers unclean. And so here in the opening verses of chapter 7, Paul is saying, Therefore, since we have these promises... Do what? We should cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the spirit and the flesh and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's as if our bodies are containers. God wants us to empty ourselves of worldly things so that we can be filled with spiritual things. Too often our problem, though, is we want to mix the two, don't we? Picture using a faucet to fill up a container, and our bodies are containers. You have the knob on the left that's the hot, in most places anyway. And think of that as that's all spiritual. You have the knob on the right that's the cold. Think of that as all physical, worldly. God tells us to use the hot. Too often we want to open up the cold side just a little bit, don't we? You know, I get it. We live in a fallen world. We, even though we try to keep our hearts and our minds on heavenly things, as Colossians 3.2 tells us to do, our feet are firmly planted here on terra firma for now. We are surrounded by worldliness. And it seems that no matter what we do, there's this constant trickle from the cold side, if you want to. Think about that faucet illustration. You know, I heard our lives here being compared to, to us being in small boats on a sea of sewage. Have you ever heard that illustration? Uh, we're trying to save people by pulling them from the sewage and into the boats. But understandably, we're going to get some of that sewage. We're going to get some of the world on us in the process. But again, back to that faucet analogy. How often do we say to ourselves, you know what, I'm just tired of, of the temperature being so hot all the time. I know that's what God wants me to do, but we reach over and we open up the cold side just a little bit as we sit down and watch that movie that we probably shouldn't be watching. About that, someone once said, if we wouldn't be comfortable with Jesus sitting right next to us watching that same movie, shouldn't be watching it ourselves. We know from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 that the flesh is constantly warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And every time I, I, I read that verse or think about that verse, it reminds me of a story of uh, 
uh, this Native American elder who heard some wolves uh, howling in the distance, and he used that opportunity to tell a story to the children on that particular evening. Maybe you've heard this story before. He said, inside each of us there are two wolves. One of the wolves is mean and evil and tries to get us to do wicked things. The other is good and always wants us to do the right thing. And these two wolves spend every waking hour fighting with one another. As the elder paused, a young child raised his hand and asked, which one wins? The elder reflected on that a moment and replied, the one I feed the most. Paul goes on to remind them in verse 2 that he and those with him had wronged no one, corrupted no one, cheated no one. Again, Paul is appealing to his own example and, and his own work among them. He's telling them that the evidence, the fruits of their righteousness were right there in plain sight. And over in chapter 9, Paul's prayer for, for them is that God would increase the fruits of their righteousness. In verse 5, Paul talks about troubles from without and troubles from within while they were in Macedonia. And recall that that's where Paul was when he writes this letter. He talks in verse 6 about the joy brought by the arrival of Titus and the comfort that came from, from this report about the Corinthians. He says in verse 8 that even if his previous letter made them feel sorrowful, he did not regret it. Why? Because the rejoicing that came out of their repentance. Verses 10 and 11 are those familiar passages about godly sorrow. And the English Standard Version that I read from a few minutes ago uses the word grief there. Godly grief. And it compares godly sorrow to the sorrow of the world. And so we'll get into that a little more as we get into the questions. Verses 13 through 16 you know, sort of round out the chapter. And, and from that set of passages, there's a lot that we can learn about the effect our own attitudes can have on those around us. Recall that, that Titus was refreshed by the attitude of the Corinthians and, and their willingness to do whatever it took to be right in the eyes of God. But imagine if that had not happened. Imagine Titus carrying that letter to the Corinthians with a heavy heart, not knowing how they would react to Paul's words of admonishment. Not knowing um, not only how they would react to it, but think about, um, imagine the Corinthians going on the defensive then about this letter. Uh, as we so often do today when someone confronts us with sin. Imagine <clears throat> the stubbornness, maybe, that would have led them further down the wrong path. And in a previous lesson, we talked about the principle of the path. Imagine how that attitude might have affected Titus. Imagine how that would have affected Paul when Titus had to bear that bad news to him in Macedonia. Imagine how that might have affected the work in general that Paul was doing. So our 
attitudes can have a huge effect on the work of the Lord, whether it's good attitude or bad attitude. It can affect the work of the Lord in a positive way or a negative way. Not only the people that are closest to us, but having what we sometimes call second and third order effects, consequences that we might never have imagined. Just from attitudes. So what I'll do is pause right there for a moment, and then we'll get into the questions, and uh, we'll pause to see if, if there's any comments about the, that kind of summary of chapter 7. Any comments? If not, we'll go right into the questions. Okay, so question number one. In, in view of the promises in the preceding chapter, what two things does Paul admonish us to do? Cleanse ourselves and work toward holiness, right? Exactly right. Uh, this is proof that God doesn't just whack us over the head with a holy stick when we come out of the waters of baptism. I mean, Paul is talking to Christians when he said, look, let, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness and work toward holiness. And, and by the way, that word that's translated as filthiness in the New King James Version actually refers to something that defiles. In fact, your version may use the word defilement there. You know, I think we all understand what filthiness of the flesh means, but, but what is filthiness of the spirit? And let me ask that a different way. Is it possible for our spirit to be defiled? Sure it is. So how do we cleanse ourselves from filthiness? Well, in James chapter 1 and verse 21, James says that we are to lay aside all filthiness and receive with meekness the implanted word. We have a choice, don't we? we? We always have a choice. People are fond of saying the devil made me do it. God allows Satan to tempt us, but God does not allow Satan to make the choice for us, does he? So, when it comes to things that defile, we have the choice. We can take it up, or we can lay it aside, as James says. And I also love Romans chapter 12, first couple of verses there on, concerning this topic. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When I think about those two passages, it helps me to remember that the Greek word that's translated as transformed there actually is made up of two Greek words, meta, meaning change, and morphos, meaning figure or shape. So literally, to change form or shape. And you may recognize that word as we sometimes talk about the transformation that takes place 
between a butterfly, excuse me, between a caterpillar and a butterfly, and we call that process metamorphosis, don't we? I mean, think about that. God has embedded so many great lessons in the created world around us. This photo shows the various stages of metamorphosis in a caterpillar's life. And God created this, this ugly, earthbound creature that crawls around on its belly. And I'm very much aware we can look at that ugly, earthbound caterpillar, that worm, and we can see beauty even in that. But God created that creature, and during that caterpillar's life, it undergoes a metamorphosis, a transformation into a completely different creature. This beautiful creature that soars to the heavens. The point being here that God's word has the power to transform us from what we were, these ugly, earthly creatures, worldly, into what he wants us to be, beautiful, spiritual, winged creatures, if you will, with our sights set on being upward bound, heavenward bound. Isn't that a wonderful picture and a wonderful lesson from creation? Now, is this process of metamorphosis an instantaneous process? Got a comment down here. We'll get to you in a second. Is it an instantaneous process? Does a caterpillar go to sleep one night and wake up the next morning a butterfly? Think about that for a second. Yes, sir. Paul told the Galatians in the Galatian letter that if they live by the Spirit, uh, they need to... Uh, Flee these fleshly things which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, uh, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger and disputes, dissensions and factions, and every kind of drunkenness and carousing. And those are the things of the flesh, but you're supposed to transform your life just like that butterfly does. And you need to add the fruits of the spirits, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and faith to your life. That's your transformation that Paul mm -hmm. tells you you need yep. to do. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill... Uh, Michael, another comment down here. Uh, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Yep, and you, you mentioned it earlier. When you, when, you, when you started talking about chapter 7, verse 1, you mentioned the tie back to uh, the, the, the previous chapter. Uh, and if you look at who he's talking about in the previous chapter, he's talking about Israel. They, they, they too went through a transformation. Like at the time where he talks about them coming out from the midst and being separate, yeah, they were God's people, but they weren't the true nation that he was looking for. They were still, they still had to go through wandering in the wilderness. They had to receive the law. They had to establish a priesthood. So they were going to transform themselves and, and kind of culminate into this, this nation uh, under David, where they would become the true, you know, the true nation of Israel. So they, they too are the ones that are going to transform. And how does that happen? Well, one of the things that he tells them is uh, you've got to start by cleansing yourselves and, and being separate, you know, mm -hmm. just like uh, chapter 7, verse 1, that we're supposed to do. Right, right. Good comments. 
Uh, again, is this, is this process an instantaneous process? I mean, there, there, there's, a, there's certainly the consideration that we, we go into the watery graves of baptism and we come up out of the watery graves of baptism a new person, cleansed. But this process of metamorphosis or transformation that we're talking about, working toward holiness, is not an instantaneous process. It takes some time, uh, more time for some than others. But we need to allow God's word to do what God's word does. But in order for that to happen, we need to be what? We need to be in God's word, don't we? And, and by the way, just another thought for you to consider. Does this process of metamorphosis, you know, from a caterpillar to a butterfly, does that come without a struggle? It doesn't. If you've never seen this before, I would encourage you to go online, uh, not right now, when you get home. Uh, do a search for the words uh, time lapse and uh, monarch butterfly, and if you remember how to spell metamorphosis, you might throw that in there as well. And, and watch this time lapse video of this, this process of metamorphosis. It, it is absolutely amazing. But what you will see there is that there is preparation, there is work, and there is struggle. And if any one of those is missing, the transformation process is never completed. All the lessons we can learn from that. So I'll stop right there. Any comments on, on this particular question? Cleansing ourselves from filthiness, pursuing holiness, metamorphosis, transformation. We've had a couple comments already regarding that, but anything else? I don't see any. We'll go on to question number two. <clears throat> what plea does Paul repeat that was made in chapter six? Open your hearts. Paul is saying here, as he did in chapter 6, open your heart. We open our hearts to you. Open your hearts to us. Open your hearts to others. All right, question 3. What was Paul's condition when he first came to Macedonia? Troubled. Troubled. Discouraged. Remember, he was at Troas. He expected to find Titus there, hoping to hear a report about the Corinthians. And he was so discouraged by the fact that Titus wasn't there that even though he had this door of opportunity in, in Troas opened up for him, he, he journeyed on to Macedonia where he continued to be discouraged, troubles from without and fears from within and so forth. So he had no, uh, his flesh had no rest, troubled on every side. You know, we may not have it as bad as Paul did in, in many respects, but are there times when we can say today, you know what, there's just trouble all around us. There are conflicts, there are fears, both within us and on the outside. Any comments? Question four, how did God comfort Paul in Macedonia? 
Titus' arrival. Also by the consolation that Titus had in, in earnest desire, the mourning and the zeal of the Corinthians toward Paul. So we talked about that some back in our introduction, how the God of all comfort provides comfort or, depending on your translation, consolation or encouragement in, in many ways. In Acts chapter 9, uh, Luke records how the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and that they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can bring us comfort. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Through the revealed Word of God. That was one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, remember, was to reveal the Word of God, to confirm it, to seal it, and recall that Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. In Romans 15 and verse 4, a similar thought stating that through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, Paul talks about sending a man by the name of Tychicus to those churches. And part of the reason for that was so that he might comfort their hearts. So we can, we can comfort one another in that way. And here in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes the time to underscore how God had provided him comfort during some pretty troubling times. And that was both by the coming of Titus. Titus would have been a sight for sore eyes, as we would say today. And not only by the coming of Titus, but the good report that Titus brought with him. It's certainly a comfort to Paul. So can we provide comfort to one another in similar ways? Have you ever been in an emergency room? Waiting? Weight of the world on your shoulders? And perhaps that compounded by the fact that you're all alone? There in the waiting room? And then out of the blue, a brother or a sister walks through those emergency room doors and doesn't your heart just soar, at least for a moment? Doesn't it feel like that some of that weight has been lifted? At least you're not alone. And I know it's especially hard right now with COVID and all. I don't even think you can wait in the ER anymore. But we need to keep looking for ways to break through to our brethren and to help when they are hurting. Just remember that it's not likely that our brethren are going to show up on our doorstep asking for comfort. Has anybody ever known that to happen? Maybe it has. We can ask for help, can't we? Has anybody ever just knocked on your door and said, I need comfort? We need to look for ways to do that. I'll just say I think it's uh, maybe it's a character flaw in men. We don't we don't always see that someone needs comfort. But we need to be diligent about that. We need to look for ways. Okay, any comments about the comfort we can provide to one another? All right, question five. What was it about the Corinthian sorrow that led Paul to rejoice. Sorrow led to repentance. Sorrow led to repentance. Exactly. 
What's the difference between godly sorrow and sorrow of the world? Repentance. Sorrow of the world leads to what? Death. And uh, we'll do these three, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, name seven things that demonstrated the Corinthians' godly sorrow. And depending on your translation, these words may be a little different. What are some words you came up with? Earnestness. Zeal. Mm -hmm. What else? Vindication. Fear. I'll throw the rest of them up here. Diligence. Clearing. Vehement desire. We already talked about godly sorrow some back in chapter 2. Paul had stated in chapter 2 and verse 6, the punishment that was inflicted is sufficient. That's what Paul said. And there's not a lot of details there, but the context suggested that sorrow and repentance would have been involved. And then we referred to this set of passages right here, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And we said it provides a sort of a litmus test, if you will, of true sorrow. What the text calls godly sorrow, or the English Standard Version says godly grief. Godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. Repentance that leads to what? Salvation. Not to be what? Regretted. Again, depends on your translation. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. And from those passages we learn there are two kinds of sorrow. There's this godly sorrow and there's this worldly sorrow. Sorrow of the world. Now, parents, let me ask you question. Have you ever had a child do something? Something that was really bad? And they said, I'm sorry. And you replied, being sorry doesn't cut it. Anybody ever said that besides me? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe I'm the only one. I'm going to tell you a sad story. This is not something that happened to me or anyone I know. And uh, it's a true story, but I've modified it slightly to get my point across. I want you to imagine two children playing near the edge of a pond. Despite the fact that their parents had warned them many, many times of the dangers involved. And, and for that reason, to stay away from the pond. But as children sometimes do, pushing the boundaries of parental guidance, they find themselves where they shouldn't be, near the edge of the pond. One of the children on a dare steps out onto a flat rock near the water's edge. The other child, thinking it would be just hilarious and not considering the consequences, pushed the child that was on the rock and out into the pond they went. Both children knew how to swim. But the water was cold and the pond was deep around the edges and there were roots. The child became entangled and drowned. Amidst the wailing of the mother, the 
the other child could be heard repeatedly saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The father, angry with himself for not getting around to putting up that fence and angry with the child because they've been warned so many times, lashes out in anger and says, sorry, doesn't cut it. Sorry is just a word. Simply being sorry, even with all of the emotions that sometimes go with being sorry, doesn't solve the problem. It fails. It misses the mark. How do we prove to someone that we're sorry? We acknowledge that what we did was wrong. We ask for forgiveness. We have a willingness to do whatever it takes to make it right. And you know, sometimes from, from an earthly perspective, there just isn't anything we can do to make it right. You know, the, the consequences of our actions can be so severe, like in our illustration. There just isn't anything can do to make it right again. So think about this. Do we sometimes push the boundaries of God's guidance? Even though we've been warned many times of the dangers involved. Do we sometimes find ourselves where we shouldn't be? Doing what we shouldn't be doing. Saying what we shouldn't be saying. Watching what we shouldn't be watching. Yet, we continue on with little thought of the real consequences. Thank God that when we sin against Him and we come to Him with this godly sorrow that Paul talks about, that God doesn't say to us, sorry just doesn't cut it. Aren't we glad that there is something we can do to make it right again? This godly sorrow, this acknowledgement that what we did was wrong. We ask for forgiveness. We have a, a willingness to do whatever it takes to make it right again. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, as we just read. And in a previous lesson, we talked about how repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in direction. And that kind of repentance leads to life. And if you don't take anything else away from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, remember this. Worldly sorrow. Sorrow of the world. That's the kind of sorrow that doesn't cut it. And we do sometimes cut this passage off at the knees when we, when we stop at verse 10 and we, we don't include verse 11. And, and, in, and we talked about that some as well in the previous lesson, how there's a proper attitude that goes with godly sorrow. And let's look at all those words again. Diligence implies considerable effort or exertion on our part. Clearing refers to an eagerness to do whatever is necessary to clear ourselves of that guilt, of that sin. To do what God wants us to do. Indignation is a strong displeasure of something that is offensive. And we need to have a strong displeasure of the things that are offensive to God. 
And we learn that through his word, don't we? Fear, to be afraid of doing those things that displease God. Vehement desire, that's a longing to have and to restore a right relationship with God. Zeal, to be excited about restoring and maintaining that right relationship. Vindication, the English Standard Version uses the word punishment there. The idea that justice has been served, even if we are the ones that have been punished for it. A few minutes left, we'll pause there. Comments about godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, repentance, uh, our proper actions or attitudes. Obviously, we're not going to get to all the questions today. <laughs> no, no comments. Okay. Let me skip down to uh, verse 10, or question number 10, excuse me. Uh, what served to increase Titus's affection for the Corinthians? Well, I already put the answer up for you. Their obedience, as well as how they received him with fear and trembling. Why would, why would Titus be received by the Corinthians with fear and trembling? Was he a scary man? What was the message? Yeah, the message. Titus was the bearer of this letter from Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. As an apostle, Paul was the messenger of God's word, the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And it was... It was God, it was the message that they feared and trembled over. You know, it seems like I've heard that word fear a lot lately. We've talked about it on Tuesday nights in our classes about Proverbs. David Bunting talked about it Wednesday night as we studied Exodus chapter 19 and 20. God's people stood at the base of Mount Sinai and trembled with fear as God descended upon that mountain. And as I suspect all of us would have if we had seen and heard they uh, saw and heard. But what does it mean to fear God? What's that? Reverence and respect. Anyone have anything to add to that? Reverence and respect. I don't really have time to complete my thought here. Let me jump over to the points to ponder, and if we have any time left, Come back and make a couple of points. There you go. Points to ponder. All right. Things to think about in chapter 7. Simply saying sorry doesn't cut it if we don't have the right kind of sorrow. The promises we have from God, and Peter would refer to these as exceedingly great and precious promises. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Those promises that we have from God should motivate us to holiness. God comforts us. We should in turn look for ways, that's key, look for ways to comfort one another. There is a proper attitude and proper actions associated with godly sorrow. See that in verse 11. These words, diligence and fear and vehement desire and zeal and vindication. And lastly, regarding the fear of God, the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, is to what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Oh, I've got that on the slide. 
fear God and keep his commandments. All right. I think we have a couple minutes left here. Yes. keeping his commandments, then you don't fear God the way the Bible talks about fear. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning, isn't it? The Proverbs writer said in Proverbs 1-7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear can be incapacitating, can it? We, we can be immobilized by fear. But that is not the kind of fear God is talking about, is it? The fear that we have for God should be born out of respect for who God is, for what God has done. I mean, he created everything. He came up with this plan of redemption for man and for what God is capable of doing, both now and at the judgment. And I kind of want to end that discussion just by saying that we need to have a healthy respect for God, a reverence for God, as has been said. But at the same time, we, we don't need to fear that God will destroy us as long as we do what he says. And he's given us a way out when we do fail, hasn't he? And we all fail from time to time. We need to come to God with the kind of sorrow that will save us. Repentance. Change of heart that produces a change in direction. And I think that is all the time I have. So, Thank you for your kind attention.